Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and welcome. Yes, I'm back with you again. As Jake Thrupp indicated to you last night, I had what they loosely call a procedure last Friday and there were one or two complications which the good doctors sorted out. A few days in hospital, they bid me farewell this morning with a few needles to get me on my way and here we are. I must thank Jake Thrupp, a talented young man making his full program debut last night. He was thorough, informed, courteous and presentable. I watched it from my hospital bed. The media is in desperate need of new, young and intelligent people who are not afraid to roll up their sleeves and get into it. Now, I hope we make it easy for you to watch, but I do want to assure you, and I try to teach the young ones this, it's not easy putting a one hour program together. You don't just waltz up to the microphone. I was proud of the fact last night that Jake did his homework, he marshaled his ideas, he sought information, and at the same time, I hope he entertained you. I should point out that tomorrow night, I'll be interviewing Australia's 25th Prime Minister, John Howard, who's now become a remarkable Australian historian, and his new book of essays, A Sense of Balance, is outstanding for all people of the political centre-right. It is a compulsory read for everybody. The chapter on climate change and nuclear power demolishes the current rubbish we are being offered. But there's one other book that I've recommended, which is also a book of essays, edited by the young man you heard last night, Jake Thrupp. The forward is by John Howard. There are 38 chapters by some of the finest conservative minds in the country. Nick Cater, whom you hear here. I've written a chapter on water. Amanda Stoker, whom you'll hear this week with Nick Cater. The talented Alex Antich, Professor David Flint, Jacinta Price, Professor James Allen. David Elliott on a very interesting chapter. Prudent, proud and purposeful, he calls it. David Maddox, our English correspondent. The gifted Matt Canavan and, of course, the great Tony Abbott. So all you conservatives, you need two books of essays on the shelves, on the kitchen table, anywhere. The John Howard, A Sense of Balance. I'll talk to him tomorrow night. And the Jake Thrupp book of essays, Australia Tomorrow, forward by John Howard, preface by Peter Credlin. And you can purchase this at purchase it at connorcourtpublishing.com.au. That's C-O-N-O-R, court, Connor Court, C-A-U-R-T, as in tennis court, publishing.com.au. Well, tonight, I'll have something to say about the Morrison fiasco, the background and meaning of the Salman Rushdie assassination attempt and what it means for a very dopey Western world. Something also on the battle for sanity in the New South Wales Liberal Party, David Elliott in one corner, Matt Keane in the other. We'll go to America and Peggy Grandy and the fiasco over the raid on Donald Trump. Now, on this program, we don't leave issues behind. While Prime Minister Albanese was holidaying in Broome, there were still victims of bushfires and floods who don't have a roof over their heads. Who in government cares? Well, we do. Strap yourself in. We're back. You're with Alan Jones on ADH TV. Look, the latest revelations about former Prime Minister Scott Morrison are disturbing, but to many who know him, not surprising. Morrison came into the federal parliament via an extraordinary pre-selection process. This is a story in itself. Originally Paul Fletcher, the current member for Bradfield, who's turned a Blue Ribbon Liberal seat, one of the safest in the country, Bradfield, taking in affluent areas of Sydney into a marginal seat. That is a measure of a man who is not worth the seat. 
Fletcher managed to swing against him at the last election of 15.3%. Any captain dedicated to winning anything would never pick Fletcher in his team. Back in 2007, though, Fletcher was a candidate for the seat of Cook, vacated by Bruce Baird, but he pulled out. So was Mark Speakman, the current New South Wales Attorney General. He'll be judged next March. He pulled out. It left two candidates, Morrison and the 26-year-old telecommunications engineer, Michael Toke. You might recall during the federal election in May, Michael Toke argued that Scott Morrison used claims about Toke's Lebanese heritage to undermine him back in 2007. Scott Morrison flatly denied the claims. The then-Senator Fiorenti Wells argued in support of Toke that, quote, there are several statutory declarations to attest to racial comments made by Morrison at the time that we can't have a Lebanese person in Cook, unquote. That's what Fiorenti Wells told the Senate. Morrison has denied that. This followed the attack from the outgoing Liberal Senator, Fiorenti Wells, who labelled Mr Morrison an autocrat and a bully. Well, to this pre-selection in 2007, Toke won the ballot, 82 votes to Morrison's eight. Now, remember, Morrison had been the state director of the New South Wales Liberal Party from 2000 to 2004. Toke wins 82 votes to eight, but the state executive voted 12 to 11 not to endorse Toke and ordered a, quote, modified, unquote, pre-selection process. Toke is turfed out. What happened then? Well, they went to this modified pre-selection process. There were only two candidates and Morrison wins 26 to 14. Morrison had been in the parliament only 15 years, yet he managed to become treasurer and prime minister. To those who know him well, he's basically a Sheffield Shield cricketer at best, who was never likely to make it as a test player metaphorically speaking. So swearing himself in to every portfolio under the sun is a measure of a very insecure man struggling with the prime ministerial brief. Morrison can digest a brief, but he couldn't initiate one. He's the only prime minister I know who, when on the defensive and challenged, would utter statements like, you're talking to the prime minister. So here we have Morrison secretly entering arrangements which would enable him to overrule the decisions of cabinet colleagues. The legality of all this is yet to be determined, but it would not require his being sworn in to assume these extra powers. They are, quote, administrative arrangements conferred by the Governor-General, but carry with them significant power. So Morrison firstly assumed joint responsibility for the health and finance portfolios in March 2020. Apparently the health issue was discussed with the Minister Greg Hunt, though why that would be necessary is bizarre. If a minister is overseas or is laid up sick, there is an automaticity about whether another minister can be delegated to assume those responsibilities. It's happened in the past, it'll happen in the future, but no, Morrison assumed joint responsibility for finance. The then finance minister, Matthias Cormann, found out about this only in extracts from this new book in which all is revealed, plagued, P-L-A-G-U-E-D, by the News Corp journalists, Simon Benson and Jeff Chambers. Then he took on Administer of Powers for Industry, Science, Energy and Resources in April 2021, which cut across the role of three other ministers. Then he took on Treasury and Home Affairs in May 2021, over a year after coronavirus hit. So what on earth were the safeguard reasons that Morrison is now talking about? 
And if there were to be administrative arrangements in place to back up the finance minister, or reinforcements, why the prime minister instead of the treasurer? And then last year, 2021, Morrison assumed responsibility with Keith Pitt for resources. Indeed, he overruled the official resources minister on the issue of a license to find oil and gas off the New South Wales coast that Liberal MPs in nearby seats, including that of Morrison, opposed. Coalition sources argued that Morrison believed it was better to use the joint powers than to sack Pitt. That issuing of the licence is now being challenged in the federal court. It has always mystified me why, when these vice-regal posts are up for grabs, like that of the Governor-General, invariably someone from the Defence Force gets the gig. In this case, General David Hurley is the Governor-General. What he would know about constitutional niceties is anybody's guess. But according to Hurley, he didn't have to know. Quote, the Governor-General signs an administrative instrument on the advice of the Prime Minister. So why do we need the Governor-General? I have to confess, Malcolm Turner makes some very good points about this today when he says he has real questions over the Governor-General's approval of all of this. The Prime Minister's advice to the Governor-General could lead us anywhere if the Governor-General just accepts it carte blanche. Wouldn't the Governor-General seek independent advice as to whether, while it may be lawful, it would be constitutionally unwise for vice-regal approval to be given to such a request? And shrouding the arrangements in secrecy, the Governor-General approved that? Hurley has confirmed that he secretly signed instruments that allowed Mr Morrison to administer this stack of portfolios. Now, the argument for seeking administrative powers, which are quite separate from being sworn in as a minister, administrative powers are delegated by the Governor-General, so Morrison wanted equivalent powers in the resources portfolio to those of Keith Pitt, a very able man you've heard on this program. Pitt wanted to approve a licence to search for oil and gas off the New South Wales coast, as I've just said, including near Sydney. It is not valid, or worse, it's totally ignorant of the Westminster system for Morrison to say that because the Minister Keith Pitt wanted to approve the licence, that was it. The egocentric Morrison was here to save the day. Except that under the Westminster system, the Minister doesn't decide, he makes a recommendation to Cabinet. His job is then to persuade Cabinet to his position. Morrison's job would be, if he disagreed, to dissuade and Cabinet takes responsibility for the outcome. But no, Morrison has virtually admitted he was a cabinet of one. He took on the powers so that he could personally refuse the licence. What were the other gutless members around the cabinet table doing? Is this how we got ourselves into a trillion dollars of debt? Is this how we raced off to Glasgow to me to it with the Labor Party on climate change? This is very dangerous territory. A measure of good government is that voters must know who is in government and who is the minister responsible. Especially is this so when there are extraordinary powers in play, such as with biosecurity laws during the pandemic. If there are two people holding the same job and they disagree, what happens next? As the University of New South Wales constitutional law expert George Williams has said, it wasn't clear how contradictions would be resolved. Look, let's not beat around the bush. This was the Morrison mentality. He always knew best. He was running the joint. And that's why he sought these administrative powers in secret, 
when there are existing provisions in place for other ministers to take over portfolios if a minister is incapacitated. And look, this is hardly worth a row of it. I'll just make one other point here, by the way. When Morrison publicly today has been asked, or earlier today was asked, you know, what is his response to what Albanese, he said, I'm not in, I haven't noted what Mr Albanese said. I've not been in politics since uh, the election. Mr Morrison, you're a member of parliament and you paid $211,000 a year. You should be out there earning your keep. However, I make this point. This is all hardly worth a row of beans, other than to demonstrate the significant character weaknesses of Scott Morrison. The pre-selectors saw this when he first stood for that seat of Cook. Those weaknesses are most manifest in this now identified behaviour. But the current Prime Minister Albanese can't be let off the hook. He will run with this for as long as he can, so he won't have to address the crisis in cost of living, in interest rates, in business bankruptcies. He won't have to explain the cost of an energy policy that says we'll be 82% renewables by 2030. And it postpones the day when he's going to have to front the farmers and the transport industry and tell them what it means for them. Or is the current Prime Minister practising the strategy of his predecessor? All these things are secret because you don't need to know. This must be the strategy because to date, we have not been given answers to any of these questions. Well, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, was a week ago holidaying at Cable Beach in Broome, WA. It's a beautiful place. I have no doubt he had a roof over his head and a warm bed. His Canberra government are talking about an Indigenous voice in the Constitution, and if not that, 82% of our energy in 2030 to come from renewables. Meanwhile, victims of the bushfires of 2019-20 and the floods earlier this year in February in Queensland and New South Wales, hundreds if not thousands don't have a roof over their head or a warm bed, but government mo moves down its blind ideological path. All the New South Wales government seemed at the time to be worried about was how they could stop David Elliott becoming deputy leader and elevate their political kiss of death, Matt Keane, into a leadership position. It gives me no comfort to say it, but on this program, we say things as they are. In the New South Wales government, there is now a crisis in leadership. They respond to headlines which they think affect themselves, but ignore the headlines which affect others. So the flood catastrophe remains unaddressed. Plenty of reports. The Premier has a 700-page independent flood inquiry report, but five months after the floods, the Premier hasn't released it. So how do we, the taxpayer, help these victims of a natural disaster to enable them to move forward? More than 1,000 people are still homeless and living in emergency accommodation. This is Australia. Others are staying with family and friends or camping out on their properties. There's talk that $3 billion will be needed to help the Northern Rivers recover from the floods. And the Perrottet government says it'll ask the Feds to help foot the bill, $3 billion. But the Keane budget that was brought down recently went on a $27 billion spending spree, but it cries poor over flood relief. There's a $1.5 billion in subsidies for electric vehicles for those wealthy enough to purchase a $65,000 car. There's $10 billion of your money allocated to green energy programs to reduce surface temperatures by 0.00055 degrees over a century. Janelle Safin must be shaking her head. At least come March, 
she'll most probably be in government and capable of persuading a new regime to properly prioritise spending to help those in need. Janelle Saffin, the state member for Lismore, joins me again. Janelle, I hate to have to be talking to you all the time, but I'm glad we are. What are things like? Can you just give us an update? Look, we're, as you said, five months on, just going into the sixth month and people are starting to say what's happening. We want direction. We want something concrete. We want to know if we can have buybacks of properties where it's dangerous to stay. We um, want to know what the future is going to bring for us. And I have called upon the Premier to release the report. And I said this, Ellen, I said, it's our report born of our experience, the government doesn't own it, but the government owns its response to us. And I said to the Premier, it needs to be released up here in and our community. And he said? And he said that was his intention and it's imminent. It's oh. being, you know, that it will I mean, be what, released. Janelle, what's, so, the point, what's the point of a 700-page so-called independent flood inquiry report if it's not released? I mean, have you seen it? You should have been the first person to be shown it. Have you seen it? I, no, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it, and I understand that I will see it very shortly. Now, and I keep saying it's our report. It yes, belongs it to is. our community. It came yes. from our experience. And what I've called for, because I made a submission, of course, to the independent flood inquiry and one to the Legislative Council, and I called mine rescue, rebuild, um, recovery, adapt and prepare. These are all the things that we need to do. Yes. We need to do them much better. We had systemic failure of government agencies. Absolutely. Resilience, just total, total, abject failure. And SES, I said, they need to do a rethink about rescue. We need an overarching rescue board. So we need all those things to happen. Mm. And the other thing I said is housing. Housing, we're in dire straits anyway with housing before the flood, and the New South Wales government has a housing strategy, but it doesn't have one target in. It's called Housing 2041, but That's there's not saying. one target. Yes. See, Janelle, How we're, we're talking... What, what, gets me, what, what gets me is you and I are talking now, and, I mean, I trust the room you're in there is quite warm. I'm in the room here. There's a bit of air conditioning outside. Mm -hmm. I just want to go back to my point. There are thousands of people tonight without a roof over their heads. There's some, some of them sleeping in rooms, they've got walls on either side of them, no roof. So if it rains, they're gone. If it's freezing, they're gone. They're sleeping in other people's clothes. They're sleeping in tents. How on earth can this happen when it's three billion that's needed to recover from the floods? The Lismore City Council hasn't got that kind of money. And I read the state budget. No. There's plenty of room for the state government to afford three billion dollars now, the Premier's accepted, uh, committed to accepting all the recommendations from the inquiry, but it doesn't help if we don't know what they are, does it? No, it doesn't help, but I had faith in uh, the commissioners, Mary O'Kane and Mick Fuller. I did have faith in their ability yep. to do the report I would too, that yep. was needed. Yep, and I made that very public, encouraged everyone to join in, and I was the one who drove and said to the Premier, you must accept the recommendation sight unseen to give us uh, hope, faith and confidence that something will happen. Mm -hmm. I've also said we need an implementation 
um, mechanism, not another agency, but something within premiers or somewhere like that that reports to us with timelines and tells us how it's going. Because you think of all the reports that have been done on floods, on all sorts of things, and we really don't get a report back. So I understand that that will happen. Yeah. But with housing, look, so many needs. Housing's still the big one. The New well, just to interrupt you, just to, Janelle, may, Janelle, may I just mm -hmm. interrupt you here to, to put our viewers sure. in the picture? Janelle's just mentioned housing. The figures are staggering. More than 10,000 homes in the Northern Rivers were damaged. Water reached these record levels, you know about that, in February and in March. 4,055 properties, 4,055 were deemed uninhabitable. There are two-storey buildings in the Lismore CDB, uh, CBD completely submerged. So now I, I went to Grantham in Queensland. I saw all of that. There's a lot of criticism of the Palaszczuk government. But the Palaszczuk government came to the party with Grantham. The mayor, good man, he's since died, Steve Jones. He, and, he worked with the government. It didn't take long. They said, no, listen, we're going to move you from here over to higher ground over there. There's a beautiful community now has been put in place. Now, if we're talking about buyback schemes, Janelle, what does that mean? It has yes. to be buyback based on pre-flood property valuations or we're going to be ripping people off. You're correct, Alan. And again, I advocated that the chief executive of the Northern Rivers Reconstruction Corporation, who's been tasked with helping us do this build back better rebuild. He made that clear in a radio interview that it would be pre-flood prices because otherwise it would be worthless. And not every house will be bought back, but there'll be people will put in their expression of interest, will assess them and see how safe it is or not safe. That will happen. I feel confident mm. that that will happen. But see, Some any buyback scheme, move. Janelle, sorry to interrupt you, but any yep. buyback scheme or land swap would have to ensure, because a lot of these are in low socioeconomic areas, would have to ensure that people had enough money to pay off their debts and enough to start again. That's the guts of it, isn't it? It is the guts of it, so that we put them in a, in a situation where they're not further indebted, and that's what we'll have to yes. work through. That will take some time, but in the interim, the what I wanted to come to was the housing task force. They said we'll build pod villages. That's fine. A few pod villages, great. One's being built out near the university, great. There's one out at Wallingbar. We don't need pod villages everywhere. A lot of people can live on their properties, particularly those in the low socioeconomic areas, but their properties they own or pay a yeah. mortgage on, give them a pod, a caravan. They can live there. They can be working yeah. on their home as well. Yeah. And that's and it well, just didn't Well, we've happen. got to find out and what then, the people want, haven't we? We've got to find out what the people want. I mean, some of these we are beautiful homes. Some of these are beautiful homes built 120 years ago. I mean, have you been permanently, are you being permanently consulted on this? Not on the housing. It was under Resilience New South oh. Wales primarily, the rollout of the pod villages, et cetera. And I did say to them, why aren't you looking at all options? Work out who owns their property, ask them if they want to be there, work out who rents, ask the people who own it, the landlord or the landlady, can they go back in a caravan and pod while you rebuild? You know, I said, just go and ask them, ask them these things. Relatives have offered 
for people to put the caravan or the so-called yes. pod, the tiny home, on their property, yep. some farmers. I said there's a range of things we could do and that just wasn't And it hasn't done. been done. It, like it's August. It's no, August. This, no happened in, this happened in February and we're still waiting. I mean, Queensland announced a $350 million home buyback scheme in March. That was a month after the floods hit there. $350 million. 500 people are going to sell their houses back to the government. When will we get a response like that here? Well, I want it today and hopefully we'll start off this week. You know, we should see the report and we should have some more certainty around it, at least the clear direction where we're going. And, yes, we watched Queensland just over the border. We saw that announced and we said, you know, we want similar. And it was actually all up. They had about $790 million because it was also retrofitting where people don't move, making it more flood resilient, um, things like that. That's what we want. It's not what we want. It's what we need. What you need. Which is very different to what okay. we want. Well, why what can't, we need. What you need. Why can't the wonder boy Keen, who keeps telling everyone he's the greatest, can't he find $3 billion and let people get on with it and shelve some of his self-serving well, programs? Janelle, listen, yep. we'll keep talking. I'm going to let you go because I know you're busy. Thank you for joining us. You've got to hang in. I mean, when the dust settles, if it ever does, we'll catch up for a cup of tea and I hope to be able to get up there. But we've got to keep at it. By talking about it, we might shame people into some immediate action. And Dominic Perrottet, for God's sake, released the report, 700 pages. Janelle Safford can read and she should be the first person <laughs> to be given a copy. Janelle... Thank you, Alan. No, Thank you, viewers. Not at all. We'll keep again. Good we'll evening. keep at it and do it again. There she is. All the best. All the best. Oh, dear. If there's anything further that I can do, just shout out. Isn't it unbelievable? Queensland a mile in front of us. What's the story? No. If it's a headline about them, like the Barrel or whatever, oh, they'll spend all day talking about it. Headline about someone else, forget about them. We'll keep in touch with Janelle and keep you posted. Look, as I've suggested earlier tonight, the Liberals had Morrison in Canberra and look where that took them, to a humiliating defeat against a Labor Party that was only wanted by 32% of the electorate. New South Wales have their equivalent in Matt Keane. Of course, he has media support. The media are dominated by the lefties. That doesn't work in the electorate. David Elliott is the villain. If the Liberal Party had 10 David Elliotts or even five, I can assure you the Labor Party would be on the back foot. Successful politics is about identifying the point of difference. David Elliott's been a man of the world. He's worked in business. He's been in the army. He's served in the army. He's a straight, sh straight shooter. Matthew Keane, CV relatively vacant. Nice bloke, but the mind mirrors the CV. Vacant. Policies which bear no relationship to liberalism. I'll interview John Howard tomorrow night on his new book of essays, A Sense of Balance, a magnificent treatise Matthew Keane could do well to read and memorise. The New South Wales government have problems with the unions. I've spoken in the past with the rail, tram and bus union leader, Alex Clarsons, very reasonable bloke. In May, Keane, as treasurer, declared that the government, New South Wales, wouldn't bow to union demands. I'm tough Matthew Keane. We won't be making expensive changes to a fleet of new trains that rail workers were refusing to staff due to safety concerns. David Elliott's made it clear that the prolonged industrial action is a consequence of keen damaging negotiations between David Elliott 
and Klaassen's because to use Eliot's plain speak, he had, quote, the rug pulled out from under my feet. That's what you get, he said, when you send a boy to do a man's job. Eliot's right, because in the end, the government had to back down. Keane, the boy, sent on a man's errand, was wrong. Not for the first time. But as David Elliott has said, the industrial action has destabilised the Perrottet government. David Elliott was right when he said, the union is sceptical of us, that is the government. He said, quote, hard to put the genie of distrust back in the bottle when it's so freely moving amongst us. It's very hard for me to look the unions in the eye and expect them to believe me after I had the rug pulled out from under my feet last time. As David Elliott said, it's already cost us millions of dollars in lost productivity. I think I still have some trust with the union, but unfortunately, the government doesn't. Well, remember two things. Elliott's 100% correct. But when the names came up for the deputy leadership of the party, Perrottet, the Premier, supported Keane over Elliott because he was frightened of the factional strength of Keane leading the Liberal Party to certain defeat next March. Read John Howard's book. Morrison wanted every portfolio. Keane has energy, treasury and the deputy leadership. Morrison's fate has been sealed. It's only months, mark my words, until Keane will cause a similar fate to overtake the Perrottet government. Well, plenty happening in America. Most of it is disturbing. Let's bring in Peggy Grandy, the former executive assistant to the American president, her, uh, Ronald Reagan. Her insights are always extraordinary. Peggy, I just want to go back to last week when I spoke to you about this phone call that Biden had with Xi 19 days ago. We still don't have an indication of what was said. There is a Xi version and a Biden version. The White House refuses to come clean or release the relevant sections of the phone call. And the Biden media supporters are silent. China say the visit by Pelosi, and this is relevant to what's happened since I last spoke to you, the visit by Pelosi to Taiwan would be regarded as grounds for Chinese threats of military action. And that Biden was told that Pelosi's going to Taiwan would have severe consequences. But Peggy, no one knows what was said in two hours and 17 minutes. Now I'll come therefore to the raid on Trump's home but Peggy, do Americans at the highest level feel that this phone call incident can't be separated from suspicions that Biden is severely compromised when it comes to dealing with China? Well, thank you as always for having me on, Alan. And these are sad and scary and dangerous times in America. And to your point, this filters out all over the world and it really is important is Biden compromised? And it certainly seems like he is. There's a trail of evidence coming from Hunter Biden's laptop and other places that Joe Biden and his family have deep business ties to China. And so what we don't know is abundant, but what we do know, unfortunately, is that China has the strong hand here. Joe Biden has the weak hand here. And regardless of whether it's a phone call or potentially an upcoming visit, I'm afraid that Xi is going to have the upper hand and that Biden is going to fall prey to whatever plan that Xi has. Uh, absolutely. See, it is an undisputed fact, isn't it, that his son Hunter Biden, the brother Jim Biden and other longtime family associates received more than $11 million from dollars from a Chinese conglomerate with ties to the Communist Party. And Joe Biden was vice president 
when that arrangement began in 2015. And there's been speculation, if not solid evidence, that Biden was, quote, the big guy that was always referred to in the communications in line for a secret 10% cut of expected billions in a joint venture. Peggy, surely this brings us to the so-called FBI investigation of Hunter Biden, which has been going on for four years without a single indictment being filed. So my question to you, do Republicans feel the FBI is dragging its feet to protect the president? Absolutely, they are. I mean, there is video evidence, there's email evidence, and you know the FBI is saying, well, we've looked everywhere for four years and we really can't come up with an indictment. Well, that's never stopped them from going after their political enemies on the right. It's never taken evidence for them to go ahead and perform these raids and other things. So we do know that there's a double standard and everybody, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, should be very worried about yeah. our government institutions being weaponized against political enemies, yeah, yeah. because eventually they're going to come after all of us. But, but Peggy, there are reports that 10 whistleblowers have come forward to complain that agents working with congressional Democrats are dismissing allegations against the Bidens as, quote, disinformation without even investigating the allegations. Has this led the former Attorney General Bill Barr to change direction and now say that a special prosecutor should take over the Hunter Biden investigation? Well, we absolutely should have an unbiased body of people looking into this. The question is, is that even possible these days? And I find it interesting that you've got the left who now is defending the FBI. And it's the same left who has been defunding the police and has been anti-law enforcement for all these years. But if law enforcement is being weaponized against their political enemies, somehow, all of a sudden, they're all in favor of it. Yes, and absolutely. this certainly doesn't filter down to all the FBI yep, agents yep. all the way down the chain. But there certainly is corruption that is seen to be abundant. Uh, no I mean, the, the current Attorney General, he's the bloke that signed this warrant, and we'll come to that in a minute. He's now being pressured by Democrats to indict Donald Trump over his actions before and during January 6th. Now, it appears as though that's going nowhere. Does Garland now find himself facing growing allegations that the president who appointed him is part of a corrupt scheme? And even worse, the alleged scheme involves America's most dangerous geopolitical adversary. Well, this is not only uh, Biden's former opponent, it could be Biden's future opponent as well. And really, Alan, all this is about is one word, distraction. Mm. The Biden yep. administration doesn't want us talking about the things the American people care about, which is crime, an open border, inflation, rising prices of gas, food, energy, everything. And they certainly don't want anybody talking about the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which both sides of the political aisle are now agreeing is probably an Inflation Expansion Act. They're spending tens, if not hundreds of billions of taxpayer dollars on things the American people don't want. No. And while they're doing this, yeah. while they're pursuing people yeah. like Donald Trump, yes. they're not pursuing criminals and terrorists, well, and America is less safe because of it. Well, coming now, though, to the, to the raid. Now, the same Garland, Attorney General Merrick Garland, who's dragging his feet for four years over Hunter Biden, is saying he authorised the raid. Now, is this just coincidence or does it further put into reverse the four-year investigation of Hunter Biden without a single indictment being filed? I mean, congressional Democrats are calling for the Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, to conduct a damage assessment 
on the boxes of documents, and the Trump haters have managed to get into the media that Trump, quote, faces a criminal investigation for violating the Espionage Act and the obstruction of justice. And this apparently is the substance of the warrant. How much credibility attaches to this, Peggy? <laughs> Well, as much as anything coming out of this Biden White House, and, you know, already there's been some interesting developments coming out. The scope of the warrant was very broad. And by the way, this originally was unprecedented that they would invade in a raid, even though the left says, don't call it a raid, it was a search. It was a raid. It was an invasion of this man's privacy into his private home, his private office, and even his wife's closet. I mean, how disgusting is that? But the, the search warrant that they had was so broad, they really could have gone after anything. And they did. And even today, they have had to start, start the process of returning attorney-client privilege documents they took, returning executive privilege documents that they took, returning Donald Trump's personal passports that they took well beyond the scope of the warrant. And so even though they had this broad reaching warrant, they thought they could get away with taking anything, they're already being accused of overreach and they're mm. having to return these things. Mm. This DOJ, this FBI should be ashamed of themselves. Uh, absolutely. Look, you've got the House of Representatives Oversight Committee chairwoman. I mean, you people have got committees everywhere over there. There's Caroline Maloney writing to the Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, saying, quote, former President Trump has potentially put our national security at grave risk. The issue demands a full review in addition to the ongoing law enforcement inquiry. Now, Peggy, reports say the FBI agents removed 11 sets of classified documents, some marked top secret, and an inventory showed the FBI took 20 boxes from the basement, including binders of photos, the grant for clemency for Mr Trump's ally Roger Stone, and information about the President of France, but they included documents marked TSSCI, referring to top secret sensitive, compartmented information, one of the highest levels of secure classification. How do you read this, Peggy? Well, we don't know exactly what was there because the inventory that they submitted was very vague. And you have to remember that Donald Trump, when he was president of the United States, he retains all classification authority. And so if he has a piece of paper that he deems to be unclassified, then it is. And by the way, these things like the Roger Stone clemency papers, wasn't that on the front page of the New York Times That's or right. the Washington Post and yeah. every place else? And yeah. so is that really considered a classified document anymore? This really comes down to it is a National Archives and Records Administration dispute. Donald Trump had been cooperating with the FBI yes. as recently yes. as June. Yeah. He had opened up his home and his office and said, tell me what you need and I'll present it to you. And they chose not to go that route. They wanted to weaponize it. They wanted to snatch up Absolutely. anything and everything they could. Absolutely. And they're already being reprimanded for it. Yeah, I mean, now they're saying, oh, well, he could be charged under three criminal statutes, removal or destruction of records, obstruction of investigation and violating the Espionage Act. It makes it all read as though he's sort of a criminal. And the warrant approved by Garland authorised the search of the 45 office. Mr Trump was the 45th president. And, quote, all storage rooms and all other rooms or areas in which boxes or documents could be stored. But Peggy, Hillary Clinton used a private email server to conduct official state business with more than 2,000 of them classified by the State Department. Jake made this point last night. She later deleted about 33,000 emails before government officials could investigate them. No raid. I mean, 
Mr. Trump doesn't seem to have denied that classified material was found, but Hillary Clinton used a private server for official business and more than 2,000 documents are classified, no problem. And she deleted emails and records that were under an active subpoena. And so, and let's talk about this Records Act because it's never been used to prosecute anybody. You get a hand slapped and by the way, President Obama left with truckloads of information that he took for his presidential library that he promised to digitize and return. Not one page has been digitized. He doesn't even have an, a presidential library under construction. And is he being prosecuted like this? We see the hypocrisy. Everybody sees it. And what has Donald Trump done? He's been an entrepreneur, a builder, a successful businessman. In fact, he's probably one of the greatest American success stories. And the left has hated him from day one because he's stood on the steps of the Capitol, he looked out to the American people and he said, I've been elected and given power that I want to return to you, the people, the rightful owners of that power. And the left has hated him for it since day one and have been after him ever since Absolutely. to get him in one way or another. One way the last another. thing they want is for him to reannounce he's running for president. Yeah. And so they're doing anything they can to get it. That's something it, to, to stick. try and deny anything. him his entitlement to stand again. I mean, you read this and it reads as if Donald Trump was in the White House, Donald Trump, 75 years of age, shoveling stuff into boxes. No, take this. No, keep that. I mean, what they're trying to suggest is Mr. Trump withheld documents when he gave others to the National Archives. Peggy, what do we know about reports that the FBI had an informant amongst Mr. Trump's staff or family who tipped them off? We don't know much about it. That certainly has been rumored. Um, it seems like somebody knew their way around the spaces, but at the same time for the FBI to spend nine hours there looking for supposedly just a few documents that were on their list, Either they went far beyond the scope of the search warrant or they didn't have anybody on the inside who was working with them. Otherwise, they would have strategically That's gone right. in, would have gone straight got what to they it. needed, and left. Yeah, would have gone straight to it. Yeah. I mean, Donald Trump has said, for the benefit of our viewers, number one, about the material taken. Number one, he said it was all declassified. Number two, they didn't need to seize anything. They could have had it any time they right. wanted without playing politics or breaking in. It was in secured storage with an additional lock put on it at their request. And to, to repeat your point, Mr. Trump claimed that Barack Obama took classified material with him when he left the White House, including papers relating to America's nuclear weapons program. Quote, President Barack Hussein Obama kept 33 million pages of documents, much of them classified. He says, Trump, how many of them pertain to nuclear? Word is lots. Where does this go now? I mean, there's talk basically that Biden's going to visit President Xi in November. It has seemed to me that there's some nexus between Biden and China that we don't know anything about. I don't think you can escape the conclusion, can you, that the Bidens and the Chinese leadership know something we don't know, Peggy? <laughs> Absolutely. And where there's smoke, there's truly fire. And think about all the things that President Trump has been accused of without evidence and all the evidence that points directly to Biden and his family that nothing has been gone after. And, you know, Joe Biden 
has everything that they've accused Donald Trump of has proven to be false and baseless accusations. But think about it. Every single thing that Donald Trump warned us would happen under a Joe Biden presidency um, has, is coming true. And yes. some of it even yep. worse than yep. even he imagined. And mm. he was laughed at. He was mm. mocked. Absolutely. And unfortunately, Absolutely. he was very true. That's, America is a dangerous place under Joe Biden. That's where we should leave it for tonight. Very, very good summary of it all. Uh, reputable writers, I should say to our viewers, are now saying simply that the raid on the Trump home reeks of political intimidation. That's about where we believe yeah. it. Peggy, great to talk to you. We'll talk again next week. Thank you, Alan. There she is, Peggy Grandy in America. Great insights. Great lady, isn't she? There it is. The LA Times reported back in February the prosecutors would have to prove that Trump intentionally mishandled or hid material, which is a very big ask, I have to say. We'll talk to Peggy again next week. Well, the attack on the British Indian writer Salman Rushdie, or Sir Salman Rushdie, indicates the deplorable state we are in in today's world. As is common knowledge, following publication of his book, The Satanic Verses, a fatwa, which is a death sentence, was pronounced against Rushdie 33 years ago by the then Iranian Ayatollah Khomeini. Rushdie was originally a Muslim. He has spent many years in hiding with protection. In recent years, he appeared again in public. But the sentence was never repealed. The death threat is constant. As one letter writer has said, quote, part of the modern double standard that, to paraphrase from Animal Farm, some religions are more equal than others, unquote. Well, the public understand this and they're angered by it. Graham Pinn of Maroochydore writes, quote, without concern about causing offence, those on social media regularly decry Christian churches for sins of the past while ignoring Islam for sins of the present, unquote. As Graham reminds us, Rushdie once wrote, freedom of speech is freedom to offend. As Stephen Pollard in London's Sunday Telegraph has written, and I quote, last Monday, that's the 8th of August, the European Union put forward what it described as the final proposed text of a revived nuclear deal with Iran, a deal which has been under negotiation in Vienna since the arrival of Joe Biden in the Oval Office. On Friday morning, the Iranian state news agency reported that the EU's proposed text, quote, can be acceptable if it provides assurances, unquote, to Tehran over its key demands. That was quoting a senior Iranian diplomat. Get it? A revised text of a nuclear deal with Iran under negotiation since Biden became president, but the Iranians saying that the text on the nuclear deal is fine so long as it meets the demands of Iran. The first deal was signed in 2015 was a disaster. Iran carried on working towards nuclear weapons. The West pretended everything was fine. They handed over huge amounts of foreign currency, which allowed Iran to entrench its behavior. Well, the much maligned Donald Trump abandoned the deal in 2018 under his maximum sanctions policy, and Iran had been brought to its knees economically. We saw a break, which was uh, Trump's intention, on its global terrorist activities. But Biden becomes president and pressures the same deluded idea that we must embrace Iran. So last Monday, the final proposed text, a nuclear deal with Iran. Within hours of that report, Sir Salman Rushdie had been attacked by a knife-wielding assailant doing exactly 
what the former Supreme Leader of Iran, Ayatollah Khomeini, had issued in 1989, the fatwa, stating the author and its publishers, quote, are condemned to death. I call on all valiant Muslims, wherever they may be in the world, to kill them without delay so that no one will dare insult the sacred beliefs of Muslims henceforth. And whoever is killed in this cause will be a martyr, unquote. This is the Iran with whom the United States, France, Germany, Britain, Russia and China signed a nuclear deal in 2015, which they're now attempting to revive because Donald Trump abandoned it in 2018, I repeat, to bring Iran to its knees economically and put a break on its terrorist activities. The man accused of stabbing Rushdie has pleaded not guilty to attempted murder. The fellow, Hadi Matar, is accused of attacking Rushdie when the author was due to speak at a literary event at the Chautauqua Institution, which is a non-profit education centre in the northwest of New York State last Friday. I might add that the bloke put himself into a position of harm, or a position which he could harm Rushdie, by getting to a pass to the event using a fake ID. There goes our intelligence again. Rushdie's 75. He was stabbed approximately 10 times in multiple places, including the face, the neck and the abdomen. He's expected to lose an eye, while the nerves in one of his arms have been severed and his liver is damaged. The assault on Rushdie triggered international outrage, but it drew applause from Islamist hardliners in Iran and Pakistan. Iran's conservative media, now remember five days before this, the EU was seeking to revive a nuclear deal with Iran that Trump had abandoned in 2018. The negotiations have been on train, as I said, since Biden became president, pursuing this deluded idea that Iran must be embraced. By the way, by the way, which country has been charged under the new deal that's being negotiated in Vienna with ensuring that Iran doesn't behave under the new deal as it did before? Which country charged with making sure that happens? You'd think we'd be joking? Russia. Well, after the attack on Rushdie, Iran's conservative media lauded the attack. One state-owned paper said that, quote, the neck of the devil has been cut by a razor. In Pakistan, a spokesman for the Tariq-e-Labaik Pakistan party that has staged violent protests about what it deems to be anti-Muslim blasphemy said Rushdie, quote, deserved to be killed, unquote. The hardline Iranian Kahan newspaper, whose editor is appointed by the ruler Ayatollah Khomeini, wrote, quote, the hand of the man who tore the neck of God's enemy must be kissed. A thousand bravos to the brave and dutiful person who attacked the apostate and evil Salman Rushdie, unquote. An apostate is a person who rejects a religious belief as Rushdie had rejected Muslim or Islam. But this is the same Iran, I repeat, with whom US, France, Germany, Britain, Russia and China signed a nuclear deal in 2015. They're attempting to revive the very same deal. The Bidens of this world, who should know better, attempt to portray Iran as on the cusp of reform. It's not. It's a rogue state with a criminal regime. Biden would be in too much cognitive decline to know that. Only last Wednesday, a member of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps was charged in America with plotting the murder of the former US National Security Advisor John Bolton. It was Donald Trump 
who abandoned any deal with Iran in 2018 under his, quote, maximum sanctions, unquote, policy. And Iran was being brought to its knees, as I said, economically, where it belongs, until it renounces global terrorist activities. Now we're almost back to where we were before the 2015 deal. Many of the same people behind that fiasco returning under Biden to pursue their delusional ideas about a reformist Iran. And remember, under the deal negotiated in Vienna to ensure that Iran doesn't behave under the new deal as it did before, one country has been charged with that responsibility. The country is Russia. The world indeed has gone mad. Well, just before we go, almost every night on this show, I talk about the climate hysteria, which is holding our country back. We can't build new coal-fired power stations to bring down power prices. We can't have a competitive manufacturing industry because the politicians want our aluminium smelters and blast furnaces to rely on Chinese-made wind turbines and solar panels. We can't manage fuel loads in our national parks, which cause bushfires, because they act as carbon sinks that offset our emissions, according to the New South Wales Treasurer, Matt Keane. But there's one group that doesn't always get a mention, and it's the farmers who put the food on our tables. Proof? Well, this week, Labor's Environment Minister, Tanya Plibersek, promised to take another 450 gigalitres of irrigation water from our farmers to boost environmental flows. Her decision is part of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, a scheme conjured up by green bureaucrats on both sides of politics who believe we need to manage climate change impacts and return the Murray-Darling to a, quote, sustainably healthy river system by sacrificing farmers' irrigation downstream to maintain environmental flows. The ironic part? At the moment, the Murray is as full as a state school, as full as ever, with the government admitting that flows from the river into South Australia are at their highest level in six years. And even though the Murray is full, Labor's got no plans to build any major dams in the system to let farmers keep more water in storage for when the next drought inevitably comes. As the Victorian Farmers Federation Water Council Chair Andrew Leahy said, no more water should be taken from farmers given the toll it imposes on them. He said, quote, over 2,100 gigalitres of water have already been recovered for the environment and have delivered great benefits to our ecosystems, but we must acknowledge the huge toll on rural communities and agricultural jobs as a consequence. Leahy said in a statement, he said, further recovery can't be achieved, will hurt farming communities and jobs and won't provide any real environmental benefit, unquote. Well, Lee, of course, is 100% correct. Under Labor's beloved Murray-Darling Basin plan, the diversion of water downstream has resulted in South Australia's once saltwater lower lakes becoming freshwater. Ironically, this perfectly usable irrigation water then flows out to sea from the lakes it then comes back and it's desalinated at the Adelaide desalination plant. What's the definition of madness? And if it couldn't get any worse, farmers are selling their water entitlements out of desperation during drought to private speculators like Duxton Water. As Justine Keach, the vice president of the Daniloquin business chamber, and it's killing Daniloquin, told the ABC the farmer is, quote, not taking a punt on having to grow something. He's got a sure bet by selling his water. This is an absolute disgrace. I've been going on about it for years. All political parties should be ashamed. That is if they had any shame at all left in them. 
We have no shortage of water in this country. The problem is the water's in the wrong places and we aren't building dams to capture it. Meanwhile, green politicians and bureaucrats are taking the only water our farmers do have and giving it back to the environment, whatever the hell that means. And the numbers paint a picture. Every day, 45 tonnes of water, 45 tonnes of water a second, are pushed into the Timor Sea from Western Australia's Ord and Fitzroy Rivers. That's four billion litres a day. In the northeast coastal region of Queensland, 70,000 gigalitres flow into the sea. That's 28 million Olympic-sized swimming pools of fresh water flowing into the ocean every year up north. So if this Cannon Brooks can build a 4,500-kilometre submarine solar power cable from the Northern Territory to Singapore, why can't we build water pipelines from the top end to our best farming lands in the south? Then maybe the Greenies will have more than enough water for their environmental flows. And our farmers will be able to produce almonds, one of the most water-intensive crops grown in Australia, for the greenies and the vegans to enjoy their almond milk lattes, even during the deepest, darkest depths of the next drought that will inevitably come. That's our Australia Today. Join the battle for common sense on ADH TV. Thank you for your company. Fred Paul is coming up next. I'm Alan Jones. You're watching ADH TV. Good night.